Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings at the U.S. Naval Institute. The guest in the studio today is Vice Admiral Roy Kitchener, U.S. Navy. He is the Commander of Naval Surface Forces, otherwise known as the SWO boss. And uh, Admiral, great to have you on the show today. Thanks for being here. You bet. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. And, and we'd love to think that you're here in Annapolis uh, to visit the Naval Institute, <laughs> but you're really here for a very important event for more than 100 young ensigns to be. So the class of 2023 here at the Naval Academy, those who will be surface warfare officers are selecting their ships tonight. That's right. Yeah, it's, it's a really wonderful event. This will be my fourth year in a row coming up. Even during COVID, we managed to, to power through it, to tone down some of the, um, the celebratory things, but it was still a really good event, and it's really one of the premier. I, I don't think there's another community that does it better than we do on ship selection night. It's really energizing. What's your, what's your message to the young ensigns or ensigns to be? I think my message is you ought to be really excited. I mean, there's not only is there a lot of change going on in the surface community where I think our professional competencies are improving with a lot of courses now and maritime skills. So you arrive on your ship ready to go. Um, but now we're really focused on tactics and then more so than that, never before, and this applies to all the ensigns here and, and across the force, is that we have purposeful mission right now. Every day our ships are in contact with whether it's Russians or Chinese warships and the ability to get that hands-on training and staring in the adversary's eyes is, is just you know, priceless. It's, it's just phenomenal. If you talk to the teams coming back um, from deployments and, you know, back to the days when sonar gangs on uh, destroyers knew who the really good ones were and the interactions and, and the professionalism we're seeing in the force, it is really a really good time to be out there and a camaraderie. Uh, but yeah, being a SWO, you should be really excited about it right now. I, I think we have a good, steady, positive trajectory, a purposeful mission. You're out there right away. You're going to graduate. You're going to go to about three months of schooling to get you ready to go to your ship. And then you're going right into it. And, and that's kind of exciting. Certainly, certainly. So a lot of focus on readiness in the force these days. And, and you've recently stood up a couple of uh, new readiness groups. So that's 06 level commands uh, in Norfolk in the fleet concentration areas. And, and their job is to oversee uh, the readiness aspect of the force, right? So talk to us a little bit about how those um, new readiness groups play, what their responsibilities are, and how the, you know the interaction between uh, ships and also the destroyer squadron. So the operational commanders that will take the, you know, the, the, the surface ships on a deployment. So if you would, yeah. um, how, how does a ship come out of maintenance phase, uh, get into the readiness phase, go on deployment, come back into the sustainment phase? What, what's the role of those readiness groups in that whole process? Yeah, let me kind of give you a broad look at it, and then we can maybe sort of wrap it up with maybe a vignette we can walk through that shows you how it's working. Uh, so first of all, we, we have not stood them up yet, but we are preparing to. We're going Got through it. all the work to do that, and we think, I don't have a specific timeline, but I'd like to do something probably this spring. We're actually getting ready to do a pilot on a few ships uh, on the West Coast where their strike group is actually deployed with their Desron, and so they have three ships back, I think one in Hawaii and a couple in San Diego. Uh, and so what we want to do is, since that Desron's Ford, 
all their resources should be focused on the fight, right? They're deployed to the South China Sea right now. And, but those ships that are back, they need somebody to look after them. Well, right now, that would be, you know, whether it's a uh, memorandum of agreement with another Desron, with my staff supporting. So my thought process, well, why am I doing that? That's just spreading it too thin. That's not optimized for force generation. And so the thought process was in each fleet, fleet concentration area, we have a command run by an 06 that is responsible for generating those ships, that force generation as they go from maintenance phase to basic phase. Uh, they oversee that training. They oversee the material readiness. Uh, and that CO has somebody to go to besides from coming directly to my staff to advocate for them. And tied into all this really is fundamentally, and we talked about a little bit of SNA, but I talked about generating 75 mission-capable ships. Uh, and that, that came from not just some numbers we made up, but it was a process where we said, hey, look, we've got to understand our readiness better. We have ships that are deployed. We have missions to defend the homeland from adversaries that come to our shores now annually. Uh, we have exercises. We have servals to make sure, you know, we're doing our DLQs and helping our aviator brothers get their uh, qualifications. Those are demands on ships. And in the past, traditionally, what we have done is sort of, oh, okay, here comes a mission. What's ready? And then it goes. We haven't necessarily looked to the future and said, okay, um, that's great, but I also need to make sure I'm sustaining things and making them ready for the bigger fight. Uh, and so we came up with some data analytics. We use a dashboard. Um, we pull the data right off the ships. There's no fat fingering things, probably still a little bit to be fair, but it comes and it's drawn right off the ships and it displays at our headquarters. And then now we're starting to push it out to the fleet. But the idea is you can measure readiness, you can measure their training, you can measure their material figure of merit, you can measure their ordnance load on board, you can measure their manning, uh, and it allows us to understand what is ready, what's below readiness, what it takes to get ready, and so you're able to manage this force, and the other added benefit is it's allowing us to identify areas where we need to do more resourcing, where we're weakened, where we're short, and so for me, it's uh, transparency and readiness that we've not had before. And then the idea is these surface readiness groups, they're going to implement that, right? They're going to manage that for me uh, in the basic phase, in the maintenance phase, the basic phase. When a ship deploys, um, it's not hands off. They still have oversight, although the Desron that's deployed and has OPCON will now be in charge of that ship and in the war fighting aspect. But you'll have some flight following. So, for example... I think a good example that we tested out recently was we had a strike group that just left uh, the Desron, and this is one of the reasons why we want to go to this change, has ships in Hawaii, the Pacific Northwest, and San Diego for their oversight. So that, you know, disparate geolocations is sort of challenging, right? And so this ship came over from Hawaii to do an exercise, our final COP 2X. We knew we had to repair some tanks on the ship. Uh, we, we knew we could do the training before that, but we needed to get it done before they went on to uh, deployment. Uh, so we decided, okay, we're going to do it in Hawaii. The Desron, again, is in the Pacific Northwest. So I, I put mid-pack. You know, we have mid-pack out there. And I said, you're in charge of these repairs. You know, you're now supporting the Desron commander. It's not his responsibility. 
they were able to muster all the waterfront things. They managed the whole thing. We got the ship fixed, the ship deployed with its Desron. So that's sort of a, an idea of how it works. Um, they're going to oversee that maintenance. We do it in 7th Fleet right now, where we have ComNav Surf Crew Westpac. A ship pulls in. They go to work for Captain Lang out there. He oversees the repairs. When it's done, he turns the ship back over to the Commodore at Deseron 15, and they go to sea. And so there's a lot to be worked out still in some of the command and control aspects of it. Um, but I think it makes us more ready. And when you combine it with this dashboard we've created, um, we really have a great insight into force generation. Um, the good, it, it's good news and bad news, right? The good news is we've got a really good way to do it. The bad news is we have transparency now and there's some stuff to fix and that requires resources, but that's okay. I think that's what we're all supposed to be doing. So pretty excited about it. So when you mentioned the dashboard, are there new new tools, new analytical tools? I know when uh, uh, the Air Boss a few years ago was trying to address uh, Super yeah. Hornet readiness and there were some new tools that, that were brought to bear to, yeah. to make that happen. You know, what are some of those tools that are sure. that, that are you know coming to bear for you? Well, I think, you know, first of all, I give a lot of credit to my good friend, the Air Boss, and, and I have to admit I stole a lot of his ideas. I think they pioneered a, a way to look at it. Yep. And I think then under the previous uh, Vice Chief Admiral Letcher, we were able to really focus on some different processes, some P2P process, how we analyze things. Um, but really the, the crux of the problem was, you know, what do you want to measure and then how do you measure it and creating these uh, data um, uh, bases and these pools of data. Uh, and that's been a challenge, right? Because everybody owns a little piece of the data. It's not just what we take off the ship. NAVC has some, industry has some, Big Navy has some. So trying to get that into the right places and then, you know, hiring on some really smart data scientists that understand how to move this data around. And then having the 06 staff or an experienced staff that understands how to, you know, analyze it and what does it mean? Because that's still incredibly important. Um, but, you know, we even have, uh, we run algorithms that even says, hey, you should look at these ships this week. We think these ones may be standing into danger, or not danger, but their readiness may be dropping. Right. Um, and so I, I, it's really valuable. But being prescriptive is the ultimate goal, right? And then in order to utilize this data that we have, uh, and then put it into implementation. Kind of another idea we looked at the aviation community for was we started these SMOCs, these surface material operations centers in, in LANT and then over in my headquarters in PAC. And the idea is you use the dashboard, understand the prioritization. Okay, so right now, one of the things we found is we don't have enough spare parts. And so we've been working on improving funding and buying more parts, you know, and the right parts. But if you only have so many and you have to prioritize, you know, Brendan McLean in, in the Atlantic may say, hey, I, I've got a ship that's got to go out and meet this mission of an outer area deployer where I need the same part on a ship, but maybe they're in maintenance phase or in basic phase. Those organizations make the decision on prioritization and we send the part where we need to the most. Uh, and so all this is sort of moving together. To the, the objective, really, is just to generate more warfighting readiness, I mean, is, is the goal of the whole uh, operation. So uh, 164 ships uh, mm -hmm. minus the DDG-1000s and the ESBs right now Correct. In, in your force. So that's, you know, DDGs, that's littoral combat ships, that's, that's cruisers, that's the L-class ships. Um, 
and and of 164, your your goal is is 75 mission capable at any given time. That that's up from a few years ago, right? This is it this is. is part Correct. of the getting better, getting real, getting better. You yeah. know, to use the CNO's term, right? Um, are you? When do you expect to have that? You know, to reach that 75 number. So we started the the uh, journey probably about a year and a half ago, quite frankly, and uh, you know we baselined it. Uh, and, and I would also argue that all the things we've talked about today so far uh, it has all been discovery in the first year and a half. And so, you know, now we're in the deep analysis. Now we're like, okay, where are the weak areas? Where do we need to do? But yeah, so 164 ships is probably the makeup of the surface force. You subtract out the, the ship classes you talk to, and then you subtract out the ships in maintenance, right? The ships in CNO availability. So you get down to a denominator of roughly about 102. Is okay. what it is. We looked to the joint staff because I said, "Hey, what what should we have? You know, we're we're here managing this readiness." And I was like, "What should we have? What should our target be? We know what the GFM demand is for global force management, but all these other things, you know, what what is it?" And so we actually went to the directed readiness tables, uh, which gives it to you by each class of ship, and then I added in things that I thought were necessary from you know exercises and the things we talked about at the beginning. Uh, so that's how we got to the seventy-five, and so the journey, I would tell you, we're on a pretty positive trajectory. Probably in the first eight months, we, we jumped pretty fast. And I think that was probably, so we started about, just as we look in the rearview mirror, about 40, like you said. Okay. And then we jumped, you know, about a dozen ships right away. And I think that was just sort of understanding the database. One of the challenges at first was we measured material readiness, just looking at C3, C4, CAS reps. I wasn't very satisfied with that because I didn't think it gave you a holistic picture. And so then we went to what we call material figure of merit. And that gives you sort of a systems approach uh, to a ship's readiness. And uh, so we use that. We measure that now. And there is, and that, that ties directly into your sailors because your sailors write the jobs. They do the maintenance. And so we found some discrepancies with how we were doing that. Mm. So we cleaned some of that up. We got it up. We found some parts. And then we plateaued for a bit. And we're like, okay, how? Why are we stuck here? And uh, and that turned out to be a parts thing, a parts yeah. shortage. We didn't have uh, some. We needed to open up more lines. Uh, we went to the supply folks and said, hey, can you help us with this? Uh, and so we cleaned up some of that. We made some more progress. Um, and now I think you know we're every fiscal year we look at increasing. And I think by the end of um, next fiscal year or before that, we should achieve our goal. And then the challenge will be to sustain it, right? I, I think it's also important to point out that, um, you know, mission capable is not full mission capable, right? Yep. So full mission capable is fully combat certified, uh, you know, a full load of ordnance, a full load of people um, and, and ready to go. Mission capable get you to, uh, you know, a tier one training with your basic phase training, which is, you know, hey, you can shoot, maneuver and communicate, right, is, is kind of what it comes down to. Um, and so the idea is if you can understand that, then you know what it takes to get to that ship, you know, to full mission capable um, is the general idea. And so we feel if we can manage that bigger number and then we had a surge, everything we had, we could completely understand how to meet that requirement. Um, and so, yeah, you can see I'm pretty excited about the whole thing. <laughs> um, talk about manning a little bit. Sure. Right. I, I want to, you know, both on the officer side in terms of uh, SWO, you know, surface warfare officer manning. And then on the enlisted side, how, how are we doing on the in, the in the surface fleet in terms of, you know, fit yeah. and fill 
uh, and where are the critical you know gaps yeah. and vulnerabilities and and what are you doing to you know to get after those things yeah so it's it's kind of a um we're at a little bit of a tough spot right now, but I'll, I'll kind of give you, I'll start from kind of strategic and then drive into the tactical. And so I, I think we have acknowledged, you know, in our Navy that, yeah, we, we really do need to man to 100%. We need as many people as we can get to, because if you fully man our ships, our squadrons, our submarines, everything is a little bit easier, right? I mean, all the problems won't go away, but you can certainly, uh, I think, manage them better. So we've committed to that, to resourcing to 100%. Um, now we're having a really hard time getting people to come in the Navy, you know, yeah. uh, on recruiting. And, and and so that's something we're focused on. And when I when I look at that and I talk about recruiting and, and people, because I get a lot of questions on that, excuse me, where, you know, is it, do you give more bonuses? And like, well, we give out bonuses and they, they seem to help, but they don't seem to be the difference maker that, you know, people would expect. I think, uh, you know, it kind of goes back to the, your original question of what would you tell the ensigns here is I think our sailors want to be valued. I think they want to be part of the organization. They, they join us to, to, to get experience, to be professional. Uh, and I think some of that is, you know, when you look to CNOs, get real, get better and being a transparent learning organization where everyone's valued and, you know, everybody's input is something we need. That's a cultural change. And I, I think in my community, that's something we've been working hard on. Um, but it's not going to happen overnight. And so what do you do to sort of bridge the gap? You know, and so I spent a lot of time listening to sailors and JOs. I will tell you that, you know, one of the things that we started when I first came in, which was, again, kind of stole this from the aviation community, uh, where they do Amex. I started Surfmex where we measure uh, proficiency and experience of uh, sailors, and then we detail them appropriately, something we didn't do previously. And that work is ongoing, and Millington has started to do that for us. Uh, I actually port that data right into our dashboard, so that tells us what the experience level is on, on the ship. Um, and so that's some work we're doing there. Um, but I really do think it's, it's you know, okay, what can we do to make sure they, they're valued and they want to be part of our organization? We're a good organization. We have good values. And uh, we just need to continue to sell that. And, and, boy, we have the adventure now, right? I mean, it is – that's what we joined the Navy for, right? We want to go out prove ourselves. And uh, I think we have to sell that and because uh, that is unique, to what we all do, whether you're flying jets or driving ships or you're under the water. And um, I think we need to make sure people understand that. And, and with COVID sort of in the rearview mirror, not yeah, always, right? right? But we're going back into ports. Um, it's kind of exciting. People are going different places, coming back and telling stories. You've got real exercises. And that connectedness is, is just so important. And so I think we need to kind of stay focused on that and then focused on some of our billets. Like I will tell you, the struggles I have uh, with specific manning are usually on uh, air intercept control supervisors. Um, we don't have enough. And so we've sort of, okay, how can we manage this unique pool of people? So we're working with Airboss and creating debts. Uh, quartermasters for us, uh, responsible for navigation of the ship. Pretty important job. We really upgunned that job after the collisions and, and made a pretty hard school. Right. Um, so there were, there's a good attrition rate to it. Uh, I use those people a lot, and I need more of them, and I'd like to pay them some more money. 
uh, and, and do other things to keep them. And so those are two. And then I have some other ones in engineering rates. So I, I think you're right. So, how are you doing getting lieutenants to sign up for a department head? Yeah, well, I, I would tell you, you know, that's always a challenge for me when I look at retention in the surface community. If you look at the big number, you know, it's been on a steady increase. So everybody's comfortable with that. I'm not sure I'm comfortable with that. I think it's, uh, you know, we look at our, um, retention numbers and, and what we who we need to keep based on some some metrics that you know hey I need this many people for this many jobs I'm not sure that's the right approach again I go back to the discussion we just had um, we, we I think once we get through the covid years I think the covid years are going to be challenging when we put people in seek you know lock them up on the ship a month before for all good reasons deployed didn't go at any ports and came back that's going to be a hard um, cohort to keep. Yeah. Now, on the same tone, if that is, uh, if we can't keep them, boy, those are some resilient people. And uh, so that yeah. that's the good news. We, we right. just got to go after them. Uh, and so I would tell you it's the same same approach. You know, JOs, I think we did some things after the collisions where we wanted to make sure there was more experience at sea. So we didn't let um, young officers go to destroyer squadrons and things like that for second tours. We wanted them to be on the ships. A really good approach, you know, good intentions. What we found was that sort of extended their timelines. And so now you can do your entire, you know, minimum service requirement four to five years at sea. That's not optimum, right? You know, for me, it was, I did 32 months on a ship and then I had a choice. I could go ashore or I, I could go back to sea if I wanted to, but it was my choice. Right. We haven't really given them that. So we're trying to, we're bringing that back. We've made some changes to things. And so, what, they're, so they're on shore, door, shore tours before they are making the decision whether correct. to stay in or yeah, get out. That's okay. a huge factor, right? right. And doing right. things like as we look at talent management, for example, um, and so taking your best ones, you know, your fast trackers who got their SWO qualifications and all this and saying, okay, um, you know, you're at the 24, 25 month point on your first ship. Tell you what, you've achieved everything. Um, if you sign up for our bonus, we'll still give you our professional training. You'll go to our, uh, second tour division officer course and our OD phase two course, which are just really good courses. And then we'll send you to shore duty. You don't have to go back to sea. And so we're trying to put in things like that right now. And we're getting a lot of interest. You know, the, it's always, you know, you got to see how it works out and the proof in it. Right. Um, the other key to this whole thing that enabled this really was, because if you go back to the original thought process where, hey, I need to have more experience at sea. Well, we do a lot of training in the simulators now. And so we had, we started thinking, or I asked them, I said, so what do we think that's worth? It's worth something. Right. It's worth time on the bridge at sea. Yep. And we measure now by, you know, how often have you operated in a high density situation, not just, you know, independent steaming of right. Southern California or Hawaii. And uh, and so we found that, you know, we've come up with some minimum thresholds that they have to meet before they can leave their first ship. So I think things like that will help people out. And um, and then just, you know, our other um, things we do with the uh, postgraduate education, uh, there's a lot of great opportunities. I, I think that's what's going to keep them in. And then that just being part of that team and then that professional um, training that we give them. But I, I think one of the things is that we, we, we don't sell enough is that, you know, you're part of a team, right? You even as an ensign are an advisor to that captain on the bridge. He needs your input, sometimes at a very critical moment. 
And you need to understand that. And you need to understand that that's important. And I think we as a community need to make sure that that is available and that's communicated directly to the team. And I think that's an area that we all have to work on, quite frankly. Sir, uh, one more question. Just want to talk sure. about the mix of the force that you see later this decade, right? Yeah. So um, unmanned platforms coming online. Uh, the, the end of the LCS build is, is coming up. I was talking to somebody from Austell the other day. The last, ah, yeah. the last one of the uh, independence class is you know, being built right yeah. now, right? So five, six years from now, what will the mix of ships be in, in the force? I think it's, it's a great question. And again, it's another one that's sort of exciting. So if, if you look at, um, you know, where will we be in six years? Well, we've already started construction on FFG 62. Um, pretty excited about that platform. Uh, you know, I think uh, the first ones we won't have uh, certain, we won't have SM6 or, or Tomahawk, but we're going to do that. We're going to put that on the follow on ones. Um, but really good ships. Um, so will Constellation be in the fleet in 2030? Yes. And, uh, and then we'll have um, DDG-1000, pretty excited about. We just deployed it out to the uh, Western Pacific. Uh, we really needed to do that because we needed to understand uh, how we're going to operate it, how we're going to maintain it for, you know, it's a very unique ship. Yep. Uh, a lot of uh, immature technology that we've now matured. And so we learned an, an immense amount about how we can write our con ops on that. And now, you know, we're going to put CPS on it, you know, conventional prompt strike. And, uh, and, that, and that work is, is on track to start in the fall. And uh, we also have uh, put aside the money to make those ships whole. There are some things we needed to do that, we, again, we've learned over the years uh, to, to make them a viable part of our fleet architecture. And so I think that's on track. And, and if, if you haven't been on one of those, uh, you need to go down there. But, but I also think we sort of need to challenge some of the norms with those things. Like that ship has a sonar. Yep. It has embarked helicopter capability. I, I'm not sure we need to do that. Um, mm -hmm. And so we're sort of challenging those norms. Now, will you have some kind of UAV? Yeah, I'm sure you will. Um, but do you need that with a stealthy strike platform? I don't know. So those are some traditional things we're, we're going to go ahead and challenge. Uh, I think on um, the amphibious force, you know, we've taken delivery of our uh, first LPD-2 class. Uh, we're going to continue to bring those online. Pretty excited about those. Working with the Marine Corps on law, I think the number we're teasing out right now is about 18. Um, you know, and so I think that's a great opportunity for our uh, our young JOs. There'll be early command opportunity there. Lieutenant, uh, Lieutenant Commander. Yeah, level. Lieutenant and Lieutenant Commander. We, we're actually... Two new early command opportunities this year that we just started. Um, you know, Vice Admiral Cooper out in Fifth Fleet has been doing some incredible work with Task Force 59 and his unmanned force. Yep. And so he approached me um, for a number of things. And then one of them, he was like, hey, what do you think? Can we have like a, uh, an early command for some JOs to come out here and run a group of these? And I'm like, that's a great opportunity. And, yep. and we have plenty of JOs that want to do it. I tell you. Right, early and, command. Yeah. And then the other one that I just, I, at the same time, I approved that we're going to kick off this year is um, an amphibious one. And so uh, it's going to be like a naval group support element. So you'll go out with the ARG and you'll be the officer in charge of some LCACs and some LCUs. Mm. And, and this is kind of key to understanding uh, how we want to fight the amphib force, particularly in the Western Pacific, and starting to build that expertise. And that's what that person would be doing. So for me, if you look at that model, now you would have, okay, 
division officer comes in tonight, picks an amphibious ship to go to, yep. becomes an amphibious uh, weapons tactics instructor, a WTI, okay, on the amphib world, um, goes to a department head tour on an amphib, maybe goes to this early command opportunity, goes to command an LPD-2 class as an 05, and then there's your big deck CO, and there's your ESG commander. So as we look to build expertise in these areas, I'm pretty excited about some of these early command things. Um, and DDG Flight 3 comes online in the summer. Jack Lucas. Will right. get, yeah. Uh, that is just game-changing technology. Mm. Um, what industry is doing uh, to take that combat system and that spy radar, that spy six radar, and integrate it is something we've never done before. Uh, and so really looking forward to getting those ships in the fleet. DDG modernization as we modernize our DDG force. Uh, again, huge upgrades to the radar, the combat system. I think what we don't talk about enough, and, and maybe for good reason, but the electronic warfare packages we're putting on those ships that are going to go to the carriers too. Is that the CWIP? CWIP, top of the line. I mean, again, if um, if you look at how these work and uh, what they can provide, it, it's like nothing we've seen before. Hmm. Uh, now, you've got to have the training to go with that, right? And so right. we're rushing to catch up with that or to stay apace with it. But the live virtual construct training that we use to, to train our fleet that it's in the aviation community and the surface community is uh, we, we're delivering some of the best training I've ever seen. And, and uh, lockstep as, a, as an integrated fighting force uh, and then bringing in our, the Marines and the joint players. So um, and, and we talked a little bit about the unmanned. You hear a lot about Task Force 59 and the things we're doing with all the drones out there in the um, in fifth fleet. We do a lot in uh, seventh fleet and uh, well, a lot in third fleet and on the West coast, as we move the, uh, the medium size and the large size ones out there, we're doing a lot of experimentation. We don't talk about it as much for, right. for good reasons. But and, is uh, the experimentation going to lead to more procurement? In other words, are you, are you finding capabilities yes. that you now say, okay, now we need 10 of these or we need 20 of these. Yeah. Is that and coming? There is. And so there's, there's two pieces to it, right? There's the truck that we're, we continue to work on with, um, and we're getting a lot closer. I, I'll be honest with you. I was one of the ones that was a little bit of, hey, how come we can't move faster, excuse yep. me, on the call regs and the uh, endurance of these ships, you know, so you don't have to come out and repair them every three days or something. Well, we made significant progress there. Um, there's still some, some work to do in that area. But where we've really excelled is on some of the mission package stuff, you know, the different packages we're using, uh, whether it's for communications, ISRT. I won't get into specifics here, and that's one of the reasons we don't talk about it that much. But there's some really good capability that we're planning on, you know, using out west, and, uh, and we'll continue to experiment with it. And uh, I've got to figure out a, a way to really talk about it so that people sure. can see. But it's, it's exciting. And, again, you know, we stood up our USV division. Uh, up in Ventura, you know, and then you have the development group down in San Diego. Uh, and you know, they're working the con ops. We've tried, experimented with it. We know we can control these unmanned vessels from lots of different places. We've, we've proved that out. You know, we have the concept of how we do it, whether it's from a ship, whether it's from a shore. So it's very expeditionary, which is really good. And then, and then we've done some pretty neat stuff with the mission packages. RIMPAC, we've had a lot of success. We've, we've used them in pretty much every Marine Corps exercise we've done. And uh, yeah, and, and I always tell people, I think we're getting ready to do another uh, fleet experiment here in the spring. And um, 
and and that'll be we'll, we'll be able to kind of do a little bit more public with that I think and uh, but people should come down and see them because we are making a lot more headway than uh, they're, they're making me who was a doubter a little bit a couple of years ago a strong believer and an advocate for them so it's good great great yeah. well sir thanks for your time today you uh, bet my guest has been Vice Admiral Roy Kitchener the SWO boss the Commander Naval Surface Forces. Uh, here in Annapolis for Ship Selection Night for the class of 2023. Exciting day to be here in Annapolis, yeah. sir, and thanks, thanks for stopping by. I really enjoyed it, yeah. Thank you.